0: Welcome to the Opening Dharma Access podcast, where we hear stories from BIPOC teachers about their dharma experiences and practice and how these inform the ways they are sharing the dharma today. I am Dalila Bothwell, your host for this episode. Joining me today is Renee Rivera. Renee Rivera is a meditation teacher and restorative justice facilitator working and learning in all the spaces in between race, gender, and other perceived binaries as a queer Latinx trans man. Rene teaches heart-centered, trauma-informed meditation as a core teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center. He has co-led the first residential meditation retreats for transgender, non-binary, and gender expansive people, and offers classes and retreats for many Buddhist centers and groups. Renee is a restorative justice facilitator for the Ahimsa Collective, working to heal sexual and gender-based violence. Welcome, Renee. Thank you so
1: much, Dalila, for having me on.
0: It's good to see you. So, well, part of of our journey together in the Dharma is we were in Community Dharma Leaders Program together. Yes. So, so many years ago.
1: It seems like a lifetime ago, but it was, I think, (laughs) only five or six years ago that we graduated. I
0: know. Yeah, the pandemic has has done (laughs) extra weird things to time. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to begin with our usual questions for this podcast, and the first one is: How do you identify racially, ethnically, and any other categories of social
1: location that are of importance to you right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think we covered the basics in your in the bio <laughs> that you just read. Identify as Latinx, queer, and as trans masculine or as a trans man. And you know, to get into a little more nuance, especially around race, um, because, like how I've identified as evolved over my lifetime, having come from mixed family. My father is Puerto Rican. My mother is European descent, Scandinavian, the Midwest, and yeah, just like con- have had a continued um, or an evolving like understanding of what that all means to me, especially as someone who's per, often perceived as white. Um, so, you know, I kind of just even think back to um, kind of my experience growing up. I, On the one hand, I was born into this activist kind of civil rights community. My father was very involved with the La Raza movement in San Francisco. Um, was actually born five days into the strike at San Francisco State that he was a part of. Um, so that was what I was like literally born into <laughs> the struggle for, especially for um, ethnic studies programs, because that was the first big student strike, the San Francisco State um, ethnic studies program that included, it was the first in the nation and then the first La Raza studies Um, program was part of that. And my father, who had never even graduated high school, you know, was part of winning that and then became a professor in that department. So, so like I was born into this struggle for the liberation of black and brown people. (laughs) And then at the same time, um, you know, I had also a white mother. And when they split, we went up to live Uh, you know, in these communes in Northern California that were all white. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so there was this way that as a kid, I just moved back and forth between these two worlds and I just let people identify me however they wanted to identify me, you know? And so it's been like uh, for me to actually say, okay, this is how I identify. I identify as Latinx, actually I identify as Puerto Rican is for me, a part of saying, this is not going to be erased, even though I could pass and assimilate, it's my choice not to do that. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's taken me years to come to, Mm -hmm. but now it's like a very firm place of this is where I stand. Mm -hmm.
0: What, so when you said we moved to, we, you moved with your mother to these all white communes. Yeah. Yeah. And how often do you mind me asking like a little bit more specifically how often were you seeing your father were you able to keep
1: that connection with your puerto rican side yeah you know that really got broken when i was a kid i went back and forth for a while and then that fell apart and i was really mostly growing up with my mother and then it was really actually my father's passed on now but Um, It was then as an adult that I came back to that relationship and reestablished that connection with him, actually with his community that was still very intact. Some of the same people who were in the struggle when I was born are still in my life now. And so there's been a kind of a restoration of that relationship, which I have to say we mostly did through food. (laughs) Food is always the connector,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> when you say food, so what kind of, uh, what are your favorite, are they Puerto, is it Puerto Rican food or, or food of the yeah. like Caribbean, Latina Caribbean diaspora? What's sure, your but favorite? especially
1: Puerto Rican food, the recipes from my grandmother and my great-grandmother. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, yeah, one of my favorites is, we call it bacalao salad, Ooh. which I also call it um, Puerto Rican potato salad. <laughs> Um, so it's salt cod with yucca and plantain, and then put on some hard-boiled egg, a little red onion, some mm-hmm. green peas, and then just pour olive oil all over it. Yes. It's so, so good. It is. It's delicious. Yes.
0: Yeah. I'm very familiar with that dish. It's one of, it's a it's a request from my sister-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. To make that. It's, uh, It's perfect on a hot day for me. Mm -hmm. That's like ultimate
1: comfort food for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's, that's very sweet and poignant that you're able to connect with through recipes with your father. And it's interesting too, that, you know, this, I live in Arizona and this struggle in, I mean, not just Arizona, but all over the country around ethnic studies, quote unquote, ethnic studies still being. Yeah something that we're having to fight for. Yeah.
1: It's like re-educating each and every generation
0: on like the value.
1: Yeah. And now in Florida, it's like basically been outlawed. Yeah. You know, and that's a movement that, yeah, that will have to keep fighting that fight. Yeah. It's a movement
0: that keeps moving, right? Yeah. Standing still and being like, okay, we're done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious about, um, well, let me ask you this. Is there anything else you'd like to offer or any kind of nuances around uh, how you identify any of the other intersections of your identification?
1: Um, yeah, I guess I just will also say that, you know, being queer and trans is a very important part of my identity, a very important part of who I am as a teacher. Um And that those also are evolving categories, (laughs) you know, something else that's changed over the course of my life. And so, yeah, just like acknowledging, you know, it's just the paradox of shifting identities, um, the kind of paradox of like choice and not choice, like, oh, do I choose these identities in some ways because of, um, like how I appear in the world, there's a way that I have to make my identities visible in Mm. an intentional way
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, because I might not, I might be perceived as cisgendered. I might be perceived as heterosexual. I might be perceived Mm. as white. So um, yeah, I think a lot about our visible and invisible identities and the ways that that um, intentionality is important. And then also acknowledging that not everyone has the choice or the like, you know, option to be visible or not be visible in these Mm -hmm. identities. And so then that's a particular place of privilege. Um, Yeah. That I just always want to approach with a lot of care. So Mm -hmm. I think that's Mm -hmm. what else I would say about it. Okay. Thank you.
0: Um, Okay. So let's move on to this next question. And the question is what would have been, excuse me, what would have been helpful to you as a BIPOC Dharma teacher? Are there suggestions you have for how our communities could be more supportive of BIPOC practitioners and teachers now? And I'm going to say also, I might, I'm going to ask you for, I'm going to ask you a different version of that same question, but let's, uh, let's go ahead. And uh, if you could respond, like how could, how, what would have been helpful to you as a BIPOC Dharma practitioner?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the number one thing that comes to mind is I just, um, what I feel like was missing in my own journey towards being a teacher and leader in Dharma Spaces is truly BIPOC led institutions Mm. to support me. And I um, felt very fortunate that I've had my spiritual home at the East Bay Meditation Center for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. So I've had a truly, it's a multi racial, multicultural organization, but it is truly bipocalypse. And that has been such an important part of my development mm-hmm. um, through programs like Commit to Dharma with Larry Yang, um, Practice in Action with Mushim Akita Nash. Like those were absolutely foundational to my development. But then it kind of stopped there. There wasn't a teacher training. There wasn't a program that would take me into leadership and teacher um, development as a teacher. So then I had to go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for what we, we did together, the Community Dharma Leaders Program, which was also just tremendously valuable. And um, and continue, you know, I had Larry Yang as a teacher on that program and mentor. And so I was able to have that thread. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Spirit Rock is a white led organization. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was something then that wasn't available. And then the next step to become a residential retreat teacher, the four-year training would have also meant going through Spirit Rock And at that point, I had done a lot of work at Spirit Rock Meditation Center as a board member, Mm. um, as the chair of the diversity committee there, and I really knew what those limitations were, and it was something I wasn't willing to do. Mm. And so I just want to say that it's really, for me, it will take building those institutions that have resources, that have land, (laughs) that have all of these, like, resources that the East May Meditation Center does not have hmm. to truly be able to support the development of BIPOC teachers. I think that just would have been a very different path than what was actually available through Spirit Rock and through um, Insight Meditation Society.
0: What, what are the, can you speak to the differences between a BIPOC-led Dharma Center and a white-led Dharma Center?
1: Right. Well, we don't have like a major BIPOC-led Dharma yeah. Center, right? Yeah. We now have maybe some emerging centers that, that have land, which I uh-huh. think is a really important criteria uh-huh. Uh-huh. because our practice happens in retreat, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and for retreats, you need land. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I guess I'm curious about... Or you need access are, to it, right? You need access to it. Because my experience was at New York Insight, the bulk of my... And it wasn't a, a residential retreat center, right. similar to um, East Bay, East Bay yeah. in that way. It wasn't... I mean, at one point, the two directors were Black women, but it wasn't... Um, still, I wouldn't say that it was a it wasn't a BIPOC-led organization. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious as to like what are the characteristics that you could take from the from your experience at um, East Bay Meditation Center that are are um, can be attributed to being BIPOC-led. If you could transfer those characteristics to another to a white-led
1: organization, what would they be? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a crucial thing for me is like, where is the like executive leadership or real decision-making power in the organization? Mm. Who is that held by? And I think Spirit Rock's done like a lot of work to bring in more BIPOC teachers, to bring in more BIPOC um, staff and board members. And yet the executive leadership has remained very white. Uh If you look at who's on the executive committee of the board, who is the executive director, who's actually that word executive means this is the person who makes the decisions
0: Uh
1: and um, who executes. Uh And that has stayed really white Uh and that I don't see that changing. I don't see that direction changing there. And I'm Uh sure, you know, um, I am curious how the future unfolds. (laughs) And I'm not going to say it won't happen in the future, (laughs) but I just don't see that direction Mm. happening. And um, in my own experience as a board member, that felt like a a place where it just all the effort stopped there. Mm. Mm -hmm. And even if we had more scholarships and we had more teachers and we had all of these things. And it's good to see now that um, we've got, um, teachers of color who are the coordinating teacher on retreats, that's really crucial because, mm-hmm. again, that's where the decision making is. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not just members of the team. Now we see our friends like Kate Johnson and mm-hmm. you Noliwe know, Alexander and mm-hmm. these awesome Black women mm-hmm. as the coordinating teachers for the retreats. Right. And that's right. such an important step, but right. it's still not reflected at the executive level. And so well, an organization like EBMC just built from the ground up with that BIPOC leadership at mm-hmm. every level, especially the board, the key staff members, all of that. Right. So it's it's similar
0: to yeah, I see what you're saying. So the the bottom, it's coming, the effort is coming from the bottom up and it hasn't reached the top levels yet. Right. Right. I got you. Okay. And so, let's say, what's so with the with the bipoc executive level that you find in EBMC? What are the characteristics that would make it? What are the characteristics that are um, that are more open, or that are more? What's the word? I mean, what's the word I'm looking for? That are what are the characteristics that make it the organization itself more welcoming to a more diverse community, um, to my more diverse staff? Uh, maybe is it the way that um, the institution is run on a day-to-day basis? Is it the mission statement and the vision? Is it like, so... What would the changes be if you, mm-hmm. and not specifically Spirit Rock, but just any kind of white led Dharma organization, if they had a BIPOC executive um, levels, what, how would, how do you think it would change?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a few characteristics are one is like shared and dispersed leadership. Mm. So a real sense that even though you have to have some hierarchy, because that's just how things get done. Mm hmm. At the same time, there's a strong value of shared leadership and um, and many opportunities for people to become, be part of leadership, to contribute. Mm-hmm. So I think shared leadership. Another one is holding multiple realities. Um, it's like a real characteristic of white culture that not only is there a hierarchy, but that there's a single like reality or narrative. Mm -hmm. This is good. This is bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is the way we do things. (laughs) More binaries. Uh (laughs) Yeah. And um, in our culture at East Bay Meditation Center, there's a real recognition that we hold multiple realities. Mm -hmm. It's that both and. um, And with that, that we hold um, that we have a community with really diverse needs.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We're not trying to, make this work for one group, one prioritized group. We're really like, we're holding everybody, even when people's needs are in contradiction. So what that means, what that looks like off on, on the surface is a lot more conflict and a lot more messiness, Mm -hmm. but that conflict and messiness is actually surfacing things that are just pushed under the surface Mm -hmm. in a more white culture organization Mm -hmm. because you are prioritizing one group. And so then it's just like, okay, if you don't fit within this group, um, or if you can't act like you fit within this group, then your needs are not going to be addressed. And at EBMC, it's like, oh, we're addressing everyone's needs, and we're going to keep working with the conflict that arises mm-hmm. because that's how we make space here for as many people as possible. And then we prioritize, say so we're going to prioritize people who don't have access in other centers, so folks of color, LGBT folks, Folks with um, disabilities that can make um, it hard to access spaces. So then, those are the people who are going whose needs we're going to prioritize when needs come into conflict.
0: Mm-hmm. So conflict as uh, as an opening, rather than conflict as kind of like whack a mole.
1: This shouldn't be here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Conflict oh, conflicts means something's wrong. No, right, conflict right. means that people's people are voicing their needs.
0: Right, right, and when you yeah. never thought about those needs because your, you know, all of your access needs are met, then it's like uh-huh. wait, 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 yeah, this is yeah. a whole world that I haven't imagined.
1: Yeah, right. And I yeah. think I'm not going to remember the exact quote, but I think Subumfu Tsome said, "Conflict is like it's an opening to deepen our relationship." Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a total miss. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy <laughs> of the quote, but that's the gist of it.
0: Yeah, and it, it requires us to. uh, Well, it can if we decide to address conflict. It is a moment of vulnerability where, like, oh, there's something I haven't seen here, right? So uh, for mm. myself, I know conflict is like, oh, I'm not perfect and all seeing, right? So I'm like, oh, okay, so opening my eyes a little bit and then being vulnerable, and I. Speaking of paraphrasing quotes, there's this, um, he works in a mental health field, Yolo Akili, and he talks about uh, the presence of conflict doesn't mean the absence of care. Mm. Right? So it's yes. really a place where we can you know, apply all those practices of care that we supposedly reach for in the Dharma, right? All those Brahma mm-hmm. Baharas and heart practices.
1: Yes. And really
0: put them into, into practice rather than theory. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So shared leadership, holding multiple realities. Okay. Thank you. So I don't know if, if there's more you want to say on the second part of this uh, second question, which is, are there suggestions you have for how communities could be more supportive for BIPOC practitioners and teachers now? So you've listed, you know, leadership changing leadership or um so is there anything else that you would add to that question
1: yeah i think i just want to emphasize this piece about land because it's really just been on my mind for a long time i think um the development of bipoc led retreat centers with land is a really crucial step to truly supporting our communities to develop Mm -hmm. Um, and Yeah, this is a question, I think, a conversation I've been in over many years with Larry Yang and others is like, can we reform or retrofit the white-led institutions or do we just need to make our own? (laughs) Mm. And a lot of us have put a lot of labor Mm. (laughs) into trying to reform and retrofit. (laughs) And I now am solidly landed in like we got to, I think we need our own institutions Mm. while also engaging Yes. With the white-led institutions. Mm-hmm. It's not like an lot like a, you know, forget you, we're gonna go do our own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that the example that is set by these BIPOC, you know, led organizations will actually also change the white-led mm-hmm. organizations. I mean, we've seen yeah. that with the East Bay Meditation Center. Um, I think New York's Insight has also been a part of that as we change. The institutions and create new ones. It just automatically has an impact on right the um, the white led institutions.
0: Yeah, yeah. So land and the resources to you know it's more it's more of the both and right. So BIPOC led organizations with land and resources to maintain all of that right mm-hmm. and takes and a lot the engagement yeah and the engagement with. Um, the other white-led institutions as well Mm -hmm. yeah okay and so the final question at least formally is where is the edge of your teaching now as a BIPOC teacher generally and with respect to BIPOC students in particular
1: yeah I think like the longing of my heart (laughs) which is maybe a different place way of saying where's the edge Okay. is often I like attuned to, what's the longing here? Mm-hmm. The longing for me, it kind of connects with this piece around land, is um, to really have um, BIPOC folks to be able to really be held in practice in the natural world. Mm-hmm. Um, actually just came yesterday from spending three weeks at Vallecitos Mountain Retreat Center in the mountains of New Mexico, the very southern end of the Rocky Mountains, and just an incredibly beautiful setting, um, this alpine valley in the Rocky Mountains. And, um, and you know, I, just to acknowledge Vallecitos is also a white-led organization and and also is... Um, really working to bring more BIPOC people, more indigenous people, um, more teachers of color onto the land. Um, And I know for myself, I've been practicing there for some years now and and now moving into teaching there. And the amount of resource and holding and care that I receive from the land is so powerful and so healing.
0: Mm. And it's just
1: like this longing of my heart. For more BIPOC people to be able to access that kind of experience uh-huh. and the way that that supports practice uh-huh. is just a whole different way for me that I can come to practice when I feel so supported uh-huh. by that connection with the natural world. And that's uh-huh. like what I long to bring more than anything for um, for students of color. And, yeah, and so it's going to take work to get more people to Vallesitos. It's very remote. <laughs> it's a journey to get there. Yes,
0: it is, yes. I heard. Um,
1: so, yeah, and I'm just, and it is, and it's a place I feel really committed to while also really feeling, you know, wanting to invest also in the few places that are starting to emerge that are truly BIPOC-led, like Dama Dana and Joshua Tree or Shelterwood and, Casadero, california so there's a few places that are emerging i really have my eye on <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but at the same time i've really i've you know i've been the vallecitos is also one of my spiritual homes and um and so i really want to bring more people to have that experience there mm-hmm. as well
0: yeah i think about the quote i think it's it's From Malcolm X, once again paraphrasing that all revolution is based on land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the journey of getting there, yes, physically, and also, you know, the um, the safety of being outside. I wasn't say it was going to say in nature, but you know, really. Uh, reclaiming that divide or bridging that divide between like nature as humans and nature as like land. And just, right. Cause you know, it's all nature. nature. Right. Yeah. In downtown
1: Oakland where I live, it is also the natural world.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And so It's just a different natural world. <laughs> it's a different natural world. Right. Yeah. And then also, you know, the, the safety that especially black or brown people in this country have not had in I'll say the wilderness or the wild, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and how that, um, how to bridge that gap of like the nervous system settling into land and the safety of land and the connection and the trust. And yeah, that's quite a gift to be able to like have one, have the opportunity and to be able to make that journey and, um, the 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 physical journey and the you know the mental spiritual and psychic
1: journey to be like
0: okay the land is I am part of this right
1: Mm -hmm. that yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and there's a way that like I can feel myself simply as nature simply as the earth itself here resting on the earth um, that is just much more accessible in a really beautiful kind of natural setting with mm-hmm. all of these different creatures with mm-hmm. the chipmunks and the bunnies and the deer and the, <laughs> uh, yeah um, ferrets and all of these different birds and all you know like they're just a way I can feel myself as part of the natural world in that setting mm-hmm. um, that's maybe a little more accessible than it is in downtown Oakland right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With all the yeah. traffic and construction and oh my god, You know. Yeah. 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 The constant noise in mm-hmm. the city.
0: Yeah. Hey, you know, as you were saying that I was thinking of, you know, there's the shifting, the, you know, ever changing landscape flow of life. You were talking in the beginning about shifting identities and mm-hmm. And, you know, and then with this last question in response to, you know, like realizing that we are nature and how nature is constantly in movement and flow. So I'm hearing a lot of like about movement and what you've been sharing today around, you know, beginning with your father and the La Rasa movement, ethnic studies movement and shifting identities and the nature. So it's like really... Embodying the nature of impermanence and change, and yeah, and seeing that nature in nature, right? Like, right, allowing it to be our teacher, yeah,
1: yes, and yeah. that, yeah, so that's exactly sort of what's being held at Vias is this idea that they'll just the land is our teacher, mm. you know? mm-hmm. and coming to the land and getting to observe the. You know, New Mexico skies and mm-hmm. sunny one minute, and you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> storming the next. <laughs> and yes, yes. There's so many changes in the course of half an hour that happens.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, microburst. That's what we've been. That's what that's yeah. the new phrase i heard this this summer desert microburst. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, is there anything else that um, we that we haven't talked about that you would like to
1: talk about? hmm i feel pretty complete yeah 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 just really feel grateful for this conversation and also the ways that our own you know kind of shared journey flows into the conversation this is really a delight to get to to connect and explore in this way
0: i know i feel the same way thank you renee
1: Mm -hmm.
0: This has been Dalila Bothwell for Opening Dharma Access with Renee Rivera, sharing their Dharma experience as a BIPOC teacher. Look for Lama Karma, Yeshe Children, Sister Peace, and Reverend Lien, the other co-hosts as they share their discussions with more teachers in the upcoming months. Look for new episodes on the first Tuesday of every month. In between episodes, we'll share a meditation, mindfulness practice, chant, or another form of practice from our guests with you. Come back to check that out and to keep on listening to our BIPOC teachers. Be sure to subscribe for notifications and rate and review the podcast to help us spread the word. Check the episode notes for resources and email us at suddenleap.a2z at gmail.com with any questions. And let's open Dharma access to all beings. Mm.